Okay, so uh, a couple weeks ago, I introduced to you to some of the introductory material to the book of Daniel. And tonight we're going to take a look at chapter one. And uh, you should have received the handout, uh, Risky Resistance Part Two. And we're going to work through that material. Uh, I want to remind you of a couple things, though, before we get into chapter one. So uh, you can see on the screen here that one of the things that is confounding about the book of Daniel is that it is written in two different languages. Chapter one is in Hebrew, chapters two through seven is Aramaic, and chapters eight until the end is back in Hebrew. And Aramaic is the language that was used during the intertestamental period between the Old and the New Testament. And so it is suggestive that much of what's in Daniel chapters one through six uh, are court legends and tales that were um, passed down orally about um, these individuals that we're going to read about. And then they are written down, they are edited, and they are released for the encouragement of a group of Jews uh, that are facing the wrath of um, Antiochus Epiphanes. And so there is an element of prose, that's the story side of the book, and then what we call apocalyptic genre an apocalyptic genre is an element of lit literature to give hope for people that are facing persecution. So we see that type of thing uh, here in Daniel. We see a little bit of it in the book of Isaiah, a little bit of it in the book of Ezekiel. And in the New Testament, uh, the only true apocalyptic type genre is the book of Revelation. But I think we'll get a feel for what the book is trying to do when we look at uh, how the stories unfold, and then how it pertains to those that are living later in the history of the nation of Israel. So having said that, one of the things that's very helpful to understand is the conflict that is going on throughout the uh, Fertile Crescent during this particular time. You'll see some nations that are surrounding Jerusalem and uh, Israel, uh, primarily in the book of Daniel, we're talking about this empire called Babylon. But there's a lot of, uh, of uh, conflict and there is a lot of uh, war that is going on between Egypt and Babylon for control of this area. And then later, uh, the Medes and the Persians will come in to conquer uh, the Babylonians. There's two pretty significant wars that took place, one in Nineveh that brought down uh, the uh, Assyrian Empire, which is up in this territory here, and the battle at Carchemish, which is up in northern Babylon. And these two um, uh, battles uh, will bring down the Assyrian Empire and Babylon becomes kind of the king of the hill. And yet at the same time, if you look at this particular map, you'll see that it's not only in Babylon and uh, that there are Jewish exiles and refugees. There's also some that are in Egypt uh, that uh, are a part of this tug and pull for control of this area. So 
having said that, a lot of the legends and tales that come out of the book of, of Daniel use the personalities primarily of Nebuchadnezzar and others in this ongoing saga of who is going to win and control this area of the world. Later in the book of Daniel, what we find is that the Medo-Persian Empire will conquer Babylon, and then over here you'll see Greece under the reign of Alexander the Great will come in and will take control of the Medo Medes and the Persians. And then finally, and that's not on this map, after Greece comes Rome, and Rome will then become the dominant world power. So those four nations, Babylon, Medo-Persia, kind of a combo uh, empire, Greece, and Rome, when we get to the latter half of the book of Daniel, they are the ones that are primarily in focus. And you'll find that they are portrayed in four beasts, and the characteristics of those beasts are descriptive of the power and uh, cruelty and fierceness of these different empires that are in uh, conflict with each other and desiring to control this area of the world. So I wanted to remind you of that as we get into chapter one, because we have to have that in the back of our mind as we go through the book. Any questions on that? Anything you observe or uh, like to ask? Okay, so let's come to the handout for tonight. And the first six chapters of the book of Daniel are often called a collection of court legends. And what we mean by that is they're independent stories uh, that have been collected and preserved and finally edited together. What's interesting is the parallelism between some of the chapters, and we won't get into that tonight, but the different chapters are written primarily to show that Daniel's God is a greater God than all the other gods. What we'll also find is Daniel is greater than the other um, uh, court uh, servants uh, in Babylon, and that becomes apparent uh, here in chapter one as we read through it. The main characters that you find in this particular chapter are Daniel, his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Nebuchadnezzar, and then a court official, although there's a plurality of them, uh, but one in particular by the name of Ashpenaz that uh, takes center stage as the, as the um, book begins. So I've already given you a look at that map, the bigger map, but what we find is that leading up to the book of Daniel, Assyria uh, ruled the Mesopotamian Valley uh, for about 300 years, from 900 to 600 BC, and the, and the Syrians are the ones that take the 10 northern tribes captive. So when we talk about the captivity of the tribes in the book of Daniel, we're only primarily talking about the southern tribes uh, that is called Judah. And what we find is that um, the uh, Babylonians will uh, take Daniel <clears throat> and his three friends back to Babylon for a specific reason, and that's what chapter one is all about. Uh, the I think we're all familiar with Nebuchadnezzar. He is a bigger-than-life individual, as you'll see in a moment. 
but what we'll find is what's important is after the um, the nation of Israel splits into two uh, two segments, Israel to the north, Judah to the south, they all have their string of kings. Uh, that's found primarily in the book of First Kings. And the one that was uh, reigning at the time of uh, this text here in the book of Daniel <clears throat> is uh, Jehoiakim. And he, uh, Jehoiakim is taken and he is subjugated uh, to become a vassal for the Babylonians. And one reason that we find uh, that Nebuchadnezzar invaded in the first place is that Jehoiakim was... Uh, fluctuating between who is he going to be a vassal to, Babylon or Egypt? And when he sides with Egypt, uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon decides to invade. And um, what we find is that it is that point, Nebuchadnezzar will invade Judah three times. And the first invasion uh, is where we find him taking Daniel, and some other prominent individuals um, that we will read here in chapter one. Any thoughts, comments? Okay, so I'm calling this chapter the cuisine of resistance. And the reason I'm calling this study risky resistance will be apparent uh, within a few, a few short moments here. But resistance is one that um, is found throughout the book, and it is God's people pushing back on this uh, nation of Babylon and what it desires to do. So the cuisine part of it has to do with food. And in chapter one, we find that Daniel and his friends are going to be resistant to the king's diet that is put in front of them. And there's a reason for that that we'll get to in a moment. Daniel is um, an individual that is, um, is trying to be Torah observant, and so are his friends. And he is also understanding that Samuel the prophet had warned what would happen when the nation desired a king. And I'm going to read a paragraph for you out of 1 Samuel. You don't have to turn there, but... First uh, Samuel chapter eight, verse 14 and following, here's what it says about a king. Um, so Samuel reported all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground, and to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war and equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards, orchards and give them to his courtiers. He will take one-tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give it to his officers and courtiers. He will take uh, your male and female slaves and the best of your cattle and donkeys and put them to his work. He will take one-tenth of your flocks and you will cry out 
because, and, oh, excuse me, I skipped a line, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. So Samuel is, uh, is, is pretty forthright in suggesting uh, the uh, tactics of kings. And the what we find in relationship to food, it has to do all the way back to the time of Samuel, the taxation of um, uh, crops and, and food supply that becomes part of the anti-king resistance. And so I want you to kind of keep that in the back of your mind. Resistance to this diet is not only trying to be Torah observant, but it's a clear condemnation of the king's claim over uh, what they need by way of food. So I want you to kind of keep that in the back of your mind as we move into chapter one. Are you ready? Here we go. So look at chapter one, verses one and two. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of his God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. So he, he comes in. And the first thing that he does is attack that which is not only sacred by in terms of the temple of God, but that which is of value as well that's in the temple. And so gold, silver, other things that are of great value, he's going to cart off and he is going to place them in the temple of his God, which is primarily... Um, Marduk. Marduk the, is the uh, Babylonian's chief god. And what we find is here Nebuchadnezzar is going to capture Jerusalem, take uh, King Jehoiachin, uh, Kim rather, I think I, I made a mistake here on the slide. It's Jehoiakim, not Jehoiachin. That's a different individual. Uh, and what we find is that um, these temple vessels uh, are are of great value to the nation of Israel. It's a part of who they are as the people of God. Now, it, what's interesting here is it says in the third year of the king of of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, we come up against our first problem. Um, the first problem is that the Jewish people did not reckon the reign of kings in the same way as the Babylonians did. So that throws us off a little bit in terms of a precise date of when this is taking place. So uh, there is in different Bibles, if you have a study Bible, there is um, there is articles sometimes that will uh, uh, tune you into what is going on. Here's one out of the archaeological study Bible. Uh, it says the dating of Daniel is controversial. Traditional scholarship holds that the book was composed in the sixth century BC, concurrent with the historical information it provides. But common arguments for dating Daniel in the second century BC are as follows uh, uh, Jesus ben Sirach um, does not mention Daniel uh, in his writings. 
Uh, Belshazzar is called King of Babylon in Daniel 5, when the actual king is Nabonidus. Uh, Darius the Mede is otherwise unknown except in chapter 6 of Daniel. And the stories of Nebuchadnezzar's insanity and the fiery furnace read as pious legends, far-fetched miracle stories common in intertestamental Jewish text. And then one that I just mentioned. Half of Daniel was written in Aramaic, a language the Jews spoke during the intertestamental period. Daniel 3 also includes three Greek words, suggesting that the book was written after the Greek culture had invaded the Near East. So it doesn't matter, really. The message of the book doesn't matter when the book uh, was actually written. But there are those that are uh, scholarly that debate a lot of these type of things. So what I'm trying to tell you is the historical details can't be precisely dated. So there's a little bit of um, ambiguity there in terms of, even though it says in the third year of the of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, there's some elasticity there in terms of uh, when some of these things took place and for whom they took place. Maybe the best way to describe it is this happened at one time for people of another time, if that makes sense. These legends, these stories, these historical incidents have happened and they are recorded later for a group of people that are going through uh, turbulence in their own day. There is differences too, and one of them is mentioned here down at the bottom of the slide. You will not see in the New International Version the name Shinar, but if you go to the Revised Standard Version, uh, it does say Shinar, which is a clear indication uh, back to Babylon in the story of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. So here's how this reads in verse 2 in the RSV. He brought the um, these vessels that he captured, he brought to the land of Shinar and placed the vessels in the treasury of his gods. So when you look at different translations, sometimes you'll notice different things. And here's the first case that we see that in the book of Daniel. All right. So that's kind of the backdrop. Now the message. So why does Nebuchadnezzar take these different individuals that we find? Well, let's take a look at verse three and we see what's happening. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and Azariah, uh, Abednego. So a couple things to notice here. This first story is talking about how these exiles were 
at first treated when they were brought to a, a land like 900 miles away from Jerusalem. So it's quite a journey. Um, it's a group of, that most scholars think is about 1,500 people that made this journey uh, back to Babylon. And they are all evaluated. Uh, there's an assessment of their competence, basically. And <clears throat> you'll notice also it mentions that they were from a royal family as well in verse 3. They are part of the nobility of uh, Judah. Now, that's very important to keep in mind. Um, Daniel, it was believed, was a priest, and um, he is the one that is a part of this group that was somehow connected uh, to the royal line in Judah. The primarily, th primarily the thing that's uh, happening here, I think, is trying to take away Judah's leadership. So when you take away learned individuals and you take away people that have the rightful um, uh, claim to the throne, you, uh, the rest of the people that are left back in Judah are leadershipless. Uh, they don't have the people that is enabling them uh, to, um, to be organized and that type of thing. So I think there's a twofold purpose that's going on here. I think first, what we find is that um, Nebuchadnezzar wants to train these individuals, indoctrinate them in the ways of the Babylonians, I think, so he can send them back to Judah and rule on his behalf in that land. The second thing, though, is this, you have to remember that Judah has just sided with Egypt. And now, by taking these people away, there's not the leadership there left back in the homeland that can continue to work with the Egyptians to lead some type of uh, onslaught against the Babylonians. So there's probably a couple of things that are going on here. They're being trained in all the administrative and cultic elements of the Babylonians, uh, and their, their names are even changed to give them a new identity. Now, we don't know the meaning of each of their names, but we do know the name of Daniel was changed to Belteshazzar, which means uh, to protect the king's life. So he is being trained uh, to serve King Nebuchadnezzar and to protect the life of Nebuchadnezzar. So he kind of already stands head and shoulders, I think, above the rest of the group Although, like I said, we don't know precisely what the other names mean, but this one we do. Any thoughts there? So now we come to the resistance. They've been brought back to the land of Babylon. And then we're told the first case of a resistance in verse 8. But... In light of all that has just transpired, uh, transpired, uh, the nation has been invaded. All these people have been taken out of their homeland, and they are being trained. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. 
Now, God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. So let's stop there for a second. One of the things that I think you'll notice here is this planned assimilation of these Jewish young men um, is met with resistance. And Daniel seems to be the one that is leading this resistance. And there is a idea here of defilement and to accept the king's food and wine would uh, be that which uh, would pollute them in the eyes of God because they would no longer be Torah observant. So that that is a very substantive concept. The idea that these people could lose their identity um, and to resist the king's food was one way of putting a barrier up to prevent the disappearance of their uh, cultural heritage and um, identity. So it's it's not haphazard that they are resisting the king's food. When you go back into other parts earlier in the Old Testament, you'll find that um, there is, especially in the book of Leviticus, um, all of these food laws. And so I want to read for you, again, out of the Archaeological Study Bible, um, just a couple things that raise the question about clean and unclean foods. Why? Why uh, did God give these commands? So listen, as I read just a couple of lines here. The rationale behind the designation of certain creatures as clean and others as unclean for dietary purposes has perplexed Bible readers throughout the ages. Possible explanations include, number one, hygienic reasons, um, uh, i.e. the fact that pork, especially if not thoroughly cooked, could prove unhealthy and carry disease. Number two, allegorical explanations, the notion that the character of certain animals determined whether or not they were clean, i.e. pigs were thought to exemplify laziness, gluttonous, uncouth behavior, and thus deemed unclean. Three, an arbitrary, arbitrary test. The idea that God randomly designated some animals as unclean in order to test his people's obedience. Number four, pagan association. The suggestion that animals labeled unclean were those used in non-Israelite rituals, i.e. certain pagan rituals entailed the sacrifice of pigs. Now, keep in the back of your mind that the defilement of the temple by Antiochus Epiphanes uh, was the sacrifice of a pig on uh, the altar. And we'll come to that. That's uh, later in the book of Daniel. That's called the abomination of desolation. And then lastly here, uh, conformity to an ideal. The supposition that only these animals conforming to what was considered normal for their species were clean. 
um, i.e. sea creatures without fins and or scales were abnormal and therefore unclean. One other wild suggestion is <laughs> uh, in the ancient mind, this was these clean animals were um, God's diet. That's that's the food that he liked to eat. So there's not much weight in that. But there's some different reasons why in the Torah, there's uh, food that is considered clean and unclean. And this becomes the focus here in the book of Daniel, that to eat that which was considered unclean was to pollute not just the body of the individual consuming it, but the entire integrity of the whole social uh, fabric. And uh, so there's a lot at stake here in the mind of these young men, because it's not just about them. It's about who the Jewish people are as a whole. Okay. Any thoughts there? Okay. So now comes a key question. When I read verses nine and 10, that God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you worse than other young men your age? The king would have my head because of you. So the key question here is, if the king is present, why wouldn't he already stop this uh, this test, as we'll see in a moment, for 10 days? It's probably because the king is not actually in the room. But Ashpenaz had been given these orders, and he engages in conversation with Daniel. And another key question is, why is he sympathetic toward Daniel? And I think it uh, maybe one reason is because Ashpenaz himself might have been taken captive and groomed and indoctrinated. And I think maybe, just maybe, as you can see here, he fears for his own life. If you cross the king, he's going to uh, have your life. And of course, that's what will happen. Daniel in the lion's den and the three young men in the fiery furnace. Uh, the death sentence um, that is always hanging over their head if you cross this highly emotive type king, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And we'll see that he is he is an individual that is filled with all kinds of wrath and anger. And uh, so what we find is kind of a solidarity of people that are already oppressed. That's kind of reading between the lines. I understand that. But maybe what is happening here is there's a solidarity that crosses ethnic lines here because Ashpenaz and others like him also have gone through the same indoctrination that Daniel and his friends are uh, going through. So what we find is that hey, the entire community is at stake here and is dependent upon using Daniel uh, to intervene for them. And so one thing you're going to find in the book of Daniel is God keeps coming through on behalf of his people. And 
it's just that is described in the Old Testament as God's hesed love, his loyal love, that he will not uh, leave you or abandon you. And uh, we will see that play out time and time again in the book of Daniel, that God comes through in unusual ways. Thoughts? Okay, so here's the test proposal in verse 12. In verse 11, it says, Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. So here's the test proposal. We will not eat the royal uh, diet, but let us just eat vegetables. In other words, things that are Torah observant. Now, it says vegetables here, but I think the intent behind this is um, is anything that is clean uh, according to their custom. But the vegetables stand out because there's nothing that is considered unclean with the vegetables. What we find here is that the uh, individual will agree to do that for a period of 10 days. Now, already we're going to see some numbers in the book of Daniel as symbolic. The number 10 is going to pop up in chapter 7 again, and there's going to be a king that has 10 horns that's going to be talked about there, and uh, the smallest horn is the most vile one, and I, it it's probably referencing Antiochus Epiphanes. So 10 becomes an important number. For 10 days, Daniel's being tested. Later, there are these 10 kings or there's these 10 influences that are going to play into um, the fate of the Jewish people. So having that in mind, Daniel says, okay, give us 10 days and then test us again at the end of the 10 days. And that's what verse 14 says. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. So they eat clean food. They stay Torah observant. And as they do so, um, they're going to come out looking fine. At, in verse 15, it says at the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the other men uh, who ate the royal food. So Daniel will come out shining on top here. Uh, and as he does so, then he becomes even more important as he has some interpretive abilities alongside of his faith and his, um, his resistance against this foreign king. Now, what's interesting in this rest of this chapter, all the way from verse 11 down through 21, is Daniel has the ability to understand not only different knowledge and literature, but he has the ability to understand visions as well. Now, that's kind of a foreshadow of what is coming in chapter 2 when the rest of the court cannot interpret a dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. But what we find here is there, there is this story that is to come, and what we will find is that 
Daniel, like other people, like Ezra and Nehemiah, will come before the king. And you never know what's going to happen when you come before the king. So uh, Nehemiah asked to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls around the city of Jerusalem. And he's afraid as well. So there's fear and courage, and there is um, this desire of, of resisting um, the king, and yet at the same time, there is a skill set that they have that the king needs to interpret some of the dreams that he has. So Daniel has these gifts, and it seems as though this the rest of this uh, chapter is highlighting not just his resistance, but his ability to interpret and uh, intervene. Remember, that is not a new story either. That happened with Joseph in the book of Genesis when he had the ability to interpret the dream of the Pharaoh as well. So some of these motifs are being repeated from earlier sections of the Old Testament. Some, some thoughts there, any comments on that? Okay, so let's finish reading here. So at the end of 10 days, verse 15, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. So whatever is going on here, what we find is that the uh, guard and uh, is going to bring the others who did not stay Torah observant into this particular situation where they too will eat the same diet as Daniel. Verse 17, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. And at the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them 10 times better. There's that number 10 again that pops up. 10 days 10 times better, later comes the beast with the 10 horns, 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. So Daniel is going to serve the king over a period of time until uh, Babylon is defeated. And that's the end of chapter one. And all of this is kind of an introduction to the book and some of the repeated elements that are going to come later in the book. As you can see here, uh, Daniel, just like Nehemiah, is granted mercy as he stands before the king because there's no clear-cut um, uh, answer to whether the king was going to respond favorably, but he does. And what we find is the elevation of these Jewish leaders, Joseph, Daniel, Nehemiah, then become servants of those that are in power. And so what we find taking place is um, they rise to the top, and yet they remain resistant 
to some of the things that the king is going to uh, command them to do later in the book. So I have a couple more slides, but I want to see what what your thoughts are on chapter one so far. Any thoughts, comments? Okay, so the the next thing that we see in this chapter is um, these individuals are political prisoners and they have been incarcerated um, and they're being controlled. Now, this also is a repeated theme, in particular in the life of Jeremiah. So Jeremiah is an individual that went through a lot of heartache. And uh, as you look at what happens to Jeremiah, I'm going to read uh, just a couple of verses out of chapter 37. Uh, in Jeremiah chapter 37, this is what he went through uh, as he also had to navigate this um, this ability to stand before those in power. So here's what it says. Now, when the Chaldean army had withdrawn from Jerusalem at the approach of Pharaoh's army, there's the battle between Egypt and Babylon. Chaldean is another word for Babylon. Jeremiah set out from Jerusalem to go to the land of Benjamin to receive his share of property among the people there. And when he reached the Benjamin gate, a sentinel there named Erijah, son of Shelemiah, son of Hananiah, arrested the prophet Jeremiah saying, you are deserting to the Chaldeans. In other words, you're, you're defecting to the Babylonians. And Jeremiah said, that's a lie. I'm not deserting to the Chaldeans. But uh, Elijah would not listen to him and arrested Jeremiah and brought him to the officials. The officials were enraged at Jeremiah. They beat him and imprisoned him in the house of the secretary, Jonathan, for it had been made a prison. So these are repeated themes that are going to come about later uh, in the book of Daniel when uh, he, as a political prisoner, uh, will be punished by being thrown in uh, to the uh, lion's den and the three individuals into the fire, fiery furnace. What's going to be interesting that's going to come in chapter three is when um, Daniel will speak. Uh, to King Nebuchadnezzar, and uh, he will say, we have no need to present a defense before you why we're not going to bow down to your goofy statue. We'll get to that next week. And um, and what we find is they have a, a fidelity to God because they believe God is going to deliver them. But this brings up the subject of what often happens uh, in in the times of war, and that is political prisoners are taken and they are punished by an unjust state. And that's true in Jeremiah, uh, who also has this experience with the Babylonians, and it's true with Daniel as well. Now, another theme I think this um, chapter introduces to us is colonization. You know, um, when the people are taken into Babylon, this is an expression of what is called the Jewish diaspora. Um, 
Jewish people have been taken from their homeland into other parts of the world uh, over the course of their entire history. And Nebuchadnezzar uh, is an individual that not only wants to take the best, not only take the nobility, but I want you to notice the middle line here. Nebuchadnezzar needed these Judeans to help his economy thrive. He was, he, whenever you're trying to overreach and conquer the world, uh, you run short of resources. So one of the things that he's doing in bringing the Judeans back to Babylon as well is not just punishing them by exiling them, but use them use them to help his economy thrive, use them to be able to um, make the uh, resources that are necessary so that they, he can continue his conquest. Because ultimately his desire was to uh, also take over the area of Egypt as well. So colonization is that process where uh, there is control uh, by some central empire or system that inhabits the world and then tries to annex that part of the world uh, and use it to build their own culture. Now, to a certain extent, Nebuchadnezzar does that, but he doesn't nearly do it as well as Alexander the Great does. Alexander the Great will bring about Hellenization, which is uh, what ultimately sets up the New Testament, why the New Testament is written in Greek is because that's the uh, the colonization of the Greek Empire by Alexander the Great into that part of the world. So when you look at chapter one, it's not just about four individuals that stand up to a king. It's also about these other things, about how they are going to be uh, how they're going to survive as political prisoners, uh, how they're going to resist colonization, how they're going to push back on indoctrination and all the type of things that kind of go along with that type of thing. So any thoughts there? Be quiet, but any questions? So against this backdrop, what you're going to find is the book of Daniel is going to talk a lot about God's sovereignty, his rule, and that these kingdoms cannot thwart God's will. Now, one of the things that you can do if you want to is there's a little prophet by the name of Habakkuk, and he's one of the minor prophets, and he questions in chapters one and two why God would have the audacity to let the Babylonians invade the nation and uh, take them captive. And um, he just can't understand it. And so he is insisting on God giving him an answer. And God in chapters one and two of the prophet Habakkuk says, well, I'm going to use Babylon for my purposes. But one day, I'm going to judge them too. And I think Habakkuk, along with Daniel, what you find is the sovereignty of God is being emphasized that God is the king of kings over all the empires of the world. And ultimately, why is that the theme that is emphasized here? That's what's going to give the people hope 
later in the intertestamental period when they are um, subject to tyrants like Ante Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, and they will lead a revolt, the Maccabean uh, revolution that takes place. So the Jews here, I think, need hope. And they look to these individuals, Daniel, Hanani Hananiah, um, you know, uh, Mishael and Azariah, as they would be known, because that's their Hebrew names. But uh, they look to them as examples of what to do in their current circumstances. And uh, ultimately, their hope is that God would get allow them to get out from under the reign of foreign power. So I got one more slide, and then that, that's all I have for tonight. So when you do a theological assessment of Daniel chapter 1, what's happening be behind the text is an affirmation of the trustworthiness of God. And it's illustrated in Daniel himself, in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because God delivers them out of their circumstances, out of the fiery furnace, out of the lion's den, that type of thing. So... Um, Ultimately, what this is trying to do is maintain um, sharp identity among the people of Israel, uh, not to compromise, uh, not to give in to these foreign powers. And um, that's what's going to allow them to keep their identity and keep their culture. Now, you, the problem that you find here, though, is you can trust in God. And yet at the same time, what we find at times, he doesn't deliver. Um, there were Jews that were obedient and refused to defile themselves against Nazi Germany, uh, but they yet still went to the gas chambers. So this type of a text, on one hand, is to give hope, but it also leads to a little bit of confusion because well, they're saying God will come through for us, but he didn't come through for us here. And so it's a delicate balance to try to understand why God delivers sometimes and why God doesn't deliver on other occasions. So, all right, that's what I have for tonight in chapter one. So I want to see if you have any questions or comments um, before we call it a night. Any thoughts? Well, that that last bit on the last slide, Larry. Yeah. Uh, if you're devout, and you you know you hold to it, and then you pointed out about Auschwitz and whatnot. That's kind of like, well, if I'm good and I cross all my T's and dot all my I's, maybe God won't get me. Yeah. There is definitely some of that, I don't want to call it superstition, but there is definitely some of that conviction that um, God won't let us be touched as long as we're faithful, that type of thing. And I think what we'll find is that these hopes that the people have by looking at these stories and hearing of the legends of these individuals is to in all hope against hope that God will do for them what he did for Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But that's not always the case. And I, you know, and that brings us back to the age old question that uh, Rabbi Kushner 
said, why does God allow bad things to happen? Uh, let me get this, this right. Why does, why does, yeah, why does bad, bad things, things happen, happen to, to good, good people? people? Yeah. So that, that becomes the <laughs> ultimate question. I think every, everyone struggles with at times. Um, why do bad things happen to good people? And that's called the problem of evil. Uh, and theologians try to wrestle with that. I'm not sure we ever come up with a complete answer to that. There's insights to it, but I, I'm not sure that it is complete at any point. But others now, have comments. This the you know the issue of them bringing the some of the brightest and best. Yeah, back. we saw Oppenheimer yesterday. Oh, did you on Monday? And it's interesting how you know America and both Russia took all the smart scientists out of, out of Germany mm. the war you know and, and most of them were Jews actually also Jewish uh-huh um, so it's just kind of an interesting not, not really an analogy just, a, just a <laughs> no little... but that is a parallel isn't it well we, we brought the smartest and the best scientists as many as we could to convince them to come here I mean yeah I think yeah. I think they went yeah. under different circumstances in Russia sure. probably with guns held to their heads yeah um but they also made the comment that Hitler would have just stuck them in concentration camps too. Mm, mm -hmm, mm. Mm. So they, so the point of the movie was that all these scientists then developed the ability to make the atomic bomb, right? Is right. that okay? And yeah, yeah. Oppenheimer, I think, was he was he was American, mm -hmm. but, but some of them, you know, were. Particularly later on, with rocket technology, were were German, you know, uh, von Braun and some of those folks. So, do you think the intent of the not the intent, but do you think one of the sub themes of the movie was we brought these people here, but but Hitler probably wouldn't have used their abilities? Is that kind of also that was that was stated? Yeah, yeah that they did they did kind of say that. Yeah, oh. yeah, fascinating. Huh. Yeah, I mean, a lot of them left. A lot of the Jewish scientists, I think, left uh, when they saw things coming apart. Mm -hmm. Left on their own accord and went to other countries, went to Europe, England, or other America, other other places. Uh huh. And um, not Russia, I'm quite sure, but they went to uh -huh. Western, many Western countries. Uh huh. It was, it was it was an interesting three hour movie if you if you get a chance <laughs> to see it. Oh, it's a long one, huh? Yeah. Very, it's very, yeah. very well, very well done. Great acting, a lot of good act, great actors and stuff. Yeah. Oh, excellent! You've piqued my interest. Yeah. <laughs> I can't tell. I haven't been to a movie since pre-COVID, so that might be a oh, good wow. one to see. So, <laughs> any other thoughts, comments, questions? Thanks for uh, that. Is a good parallel. That's a good analogy. Anybody else? So this is an interesting book. It really is interesting, and I think we're going to see beginning next week some of the uh, staging that is put into the story uh, is one that uh, I think is not only educational, but it's unforgettable as well. We'll see that beginning in chapter two. All right. If you don't have any other questions or comments, uh, we'll, we'll finish up at this point. Thanks, Larry. Hey, thanks. All right. You're welcome. Thanks. Hope you have a great. Oh, um, uh, Helen and uh, Brenda, 
Uh, we're having services outside at Chagrin uh, Park this weekend. I didn't know. Uh, we're having a picnic and service together. I, so I just didn't know if you caught that or not, that information or not. So I wanted to make sure yep. you know. Okay. And Mark reminded us earlier, so. <laughs> oh, okay. Good, good, good. Good. Are you guys coming? Yes. Okay. So I'll put you in the head count for. Okay. Yes. Okay. Thank you. All right. Very good. All right. We'll All see, right. You then. see you then. Bye. 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 Bye.